0: At this time, the children are dismissed for Children's Church, and I'll invite everyone else to find 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As the children are, are leaving and you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Meredith made reference to it, but I know you're all aware of just the, the unrest Uh, among our country, and the rallies, and the marches, and the protests, and the riots. And yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, I think there were some 40,000 people in Boston marching. And people are shouting, and you see it on social media, and you see it in the news. and I'm not going to preach about all that this morning. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians, and we happen to be in chapter 9. But central to all that that we see going on is this concept of rights. And central to chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians is this concept of rights. And we care a lot about rights as Americans and as a country. I think you see that. We talk about the right to free speech, the right to equal treatment, the right to life, the right to choose, the right to bear arms, children's rights, animal rights, workers' rights, civil rights. And then we have the more unspoken rights that we care about. We feel that we have the right to a peaceful home, and when that's impinged upon, we're upset by it. Teenagers feel they have the right to a cell phone, and if they're asked to silence it or put it away, they feel that their rights have been trampled upon. After a hard day of work, many of us feel we have the right to a bowl of ice cream at the end of the day. We feel we have the right to be heard, the right to age with dignity, This idea of rights is behind a lot of the things that we say naturally, like, that's mine, or I was here first. We're appealing to rights that we all think that we should agree upon, that we have. We have rights. When I'm outside on Saturday morning in our otherwise quiet neighborhood, and our neighbor with the insanely loud motorcycle drives past, and my brain rattles from how loud it is, why does that aggravate me? It's because I have this almost unspoken feeling that I have the right to a quiet Saturday morning. And he's impinging on my rights. Rights is central to how we think about life and our quality of life. But the question we need to wrestle with this morning, and that's what this text will help us do, is how are we as Christians supposed to think about rights? Not just Americans or just people, but as Christians— whose world has been completely turned upside down by Jesus Christ, who are completely new creatures, now having the mind of Jesus Christ, who himself let go of the right to be in the form of God and came down to be born as a human and gave his life. How are we to think about rights? Surely it's different from how non-Christians think about rights. Everything is different for us as Christians. So how are we to think about this concept of rights? Last week, we looked at how the Corinthian Christians in Chapter Eight were arguing about their right to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. The more educated Corinthian Christians thought it 's not a sin; we have every right to eat this food. Those who were considered in paul 's language weaker Christians felt like it was sin, and so there was this big argument about this right about this food and Paul addressed that in chapter eight, and his conclusion summed up pretty well in Chapter 8, verse 9, he says, basically, you do have this right. You can eat this meat sacrificed to idols, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So we saw all that last week, and we won't rehash it, but basically he said, yes, this right is legitimate. You do have this right, but be careful that in enjoying your rights, you don't hurt other people and become a stumbling block to the weak. And then this chapter, he expands on this idea of how Christians hold their rights and really delves into it in a more detailed way, drills down on it. He shows his own personal perspective on a Christian's disposition to his personal rights. Now, I think it's really going to be helpful for us to read this passage together this morning in light of everything that's going on in the world, in light of what may be going on just in your own households. But before we read it together, let's pray. We desperately always need God's help, not just to understand his word, but to genuinely receive it and be transformed by it. So if you'd bow with me, I'll pray, representing us. Father, thank you for your word and giving us this weekly rhythm of gathering around it. Help us to focus, help us mentally to receive it and understand it. But help us to spiritually receive it and be transformed by it and how we think and how we view the world, and how we view our own personal rights, and how we view the people around us, help us to think with the mind of Christ. Please help us now. Help me serve your people well. Let your word speak clearly and powerfully to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. The first thing we're going to notice as we get into chapter 9 is that Paul definitely had rights. The Corinthian Christians had rights, and they were sensitive about them. And Paul, as he gets into chapter 9, the first thing he wants to make clear is he definitely has rights. Let's look at the first three verses, and you'll see what I mean. First Corinthians 9, starting at verse 1. He writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So he's in essence saying, you guys are all worked up over your rights. Let me tell you about my rights. Let me teach you about how a Christian should look at rights. Think about what rights I have as an apostle. I have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Have any of you guys seen the Lord Jesus Christ? I am an apostle. Are any of you guys apostles? You are my workmanship. In other words, I founded your church. Did any of you guys found your church? If anybody in your church culture has rights, it would be me. So imagine if Paul had founded Doolin's Grove Church and he came through the doors today. The Apostle Paul, somehow through time travel, somebody had gone and brought him to 2017 or, or, or actually the 1800s when this church was founded. And he planted the seeds of the gospel here in this part of Charlotte and this church grew from that. And we all were fruit of his gospel sowing back then. And then he came in this Sunday, right now while I'm preaching, he walked in. Well, he would definitely have the right to take the pulpit and preach to you. I would gladly close my Bible and sit with you. He could preach. He could have that right. He saw Jesus. He's an apostle. He founded the church. If he came to the fellowship time, he definitely would have the right, if he wanted to, to get to the front of the line. To make sure he got the flavor bagels he wanted. He's the apostle Paul. He could definitely get the last of the best kind of donut. He could have these rights. He's the apostle, Paul. Now, what rights did he have in mind here as he begins to teach them about rights? Look in verses 4 through 6. Because I'm an apostle, me and my, my um, colleagues, do we, in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, who's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay, so follow Paul's line of thinking here. You guys are all upset about rights. Let me teach you about how Christians look at rights by making myself an example. Don't I have a lot of rights as an apostle? For example, the right to eat and drink, which is what he covered last Sunday. For another example, the right to take along a believing wife, which... Stuff we've talked about most of the summer through chapter 7. And then a third example, the right to refrain from working for a living. In other words, the right to make my living being an apostle, not to have to be bivocational or have another job. Don't I have these rights? Don't you agree? He's saying to the Corinthian Christians, and they would agree to these things, I'm sure. That's why these are rhetorical questions he's writing. Now, this third one is a new idea in the letter. He hasn't talked about this yet but this is going to be the centerpiece example for everything he's going to say about how Christians should approach their rights. Verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas, his sort of assistant colleague, is it only Barnabas and I who, would ha- who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He drills down on this specific point for almost the rest of the chapter. Let's continue to follow his line of thinking. First, he gives five proofs that this is a legitimate right, that he has the right to make his living just doing the vocational work of being an apostle. He has the right not to have to make tents to support himself. And he's going to prove it out with five different proofs. First, you're going to see he's going to prove it by the fact that this is just a common practice. This is a scriptural practice. It's their current practice in the Corinthian church. It's a Jewish religious practice. And it's a Christian practice. Now, I know none of you are upset about the same thing the Corinthians were, but we do need to just look at these five proofs briefly. Let's just read through them briefly and see what Paul says here. And it's going to get to his overarching point. First, this is common practice. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? In other words, soldiers exercise this right. Vineyard planters exercise this right. And shepherds exercise this right. You don't see a soldier taking out a loan in order to go a length of time during his tour of duty without any compensation. You don't see a soldier having to bring his own gear, his own supplies. We expect soldiers to be able to survive by the work they're doing for us. You don't see a farmer who's labored in the fields and produced a crop buying his own produce at the farmer's market from another job that he has Will you expect him to eat the fruit of his labors. So it's common practice. Secondly, it's a scriptural practice. Verses 8 through 11. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So it's a common practice. It's also a scriptural practice. Oxen even have this right. That refers back to Old Testament law where you weren't supposed to muzzle the ox because while he was working in the field, he would need to be able to eat to sustain his continued work in the field. For that matter, plowmen and threshers exercise that same right. Third point, third proof, it's their current practice in the church too. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So apparently they were supporting financially other ministers in the church who were not apostles. And Paul's saying if they can exercise that right, can't we exercise that right even more? Now he tips his hand toward the big overarching point in the second half of verse 12. We'll go ahead and read it, but I'm not going to expound on it yet. We'll return to that in the big finale. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Right. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, just keep that in your mind. We're going to return to it. But first, he has two more proofs of this point. Fourth, it is a Jewish religious practice. Verse 13 Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. He may have been referring to the Jewish temple. He may have been referring to the pagan temples there in Corinth. Either way, the point holds true. Here's another example where this rite is exercised. And then lastly, it's a Christian practice. Verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So the disciples exercise this right. In Matthew 10, 9 and 10, Jesus, sending his disciples out as missionary, minister, said, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two, or, two turni- I'm sorry, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Okay, all that, I just gave you all that. None of you guys wanted all that. None of you came in wondering about this. But it's important for us to get all that before we get to his big point. He, I don't think, is trying to convince the Corinthians that he ought to have this right. I think he's just proving exhaustively this is a a right that we both agree I have. It's common practice, it's scriptural practice, it's current practice, it's a Jewish religious practice, it's a Christian practice. You know it, I know it. I have this right. It's legitimate. And then he brings down the hammer on his big point, the big point for us as well. Though Paul had rights as an apostle, he didn't make use of them. Though he definitely, absolutely had legitimate rights, he did not make use of them. At least not all of them, and at least not fully. We saw it in verse 12, the second half, where he says, Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then we see it in verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So even though Paul definitely had legitimate rights as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he did not make use of all of them, and he did not make full use of many of them. Why? Well, for this specific example that he chose to be his example, to make his point, is so that he would have grounds for boasting and reward. For him to have made use of his rights would have eroded his grounds for boasting and reward. Look at verses 16 through 18. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, I'm going to preach the gospel. You heard how I got converted on the road to Damascus and Jesus told me to preach the gospel. One way or the other, exercising all my rights or not, I'm going to preach the gospel. That's nothing special. There's no, nothing extra done there. Verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? What do I gain by not exercising all my rights as an apostle? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So there's the answer to why he doesn't use his rights for that specific example. And that's very interesting, and we could spend a lot of time examining that, but I'm more eager to get to his main point. Why would a Christian not make a huge deal over their personal rights? Why would a Christian hold their personal rights so loosely the way Paul is? For that, we need to read verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. is Paul's reason for holding his rights so loosely? Why would a Christian think like this? His big point that he's trying to make to the First Corinthian Christians and that God is making to us this morning is that he, as a Christian, no longer felt the necessity to strive for his personal rights, but instead felt the necessity to strive to serve people with the gospel. And wherever those conflicted, serving people with the gospel wins out. Serving people with the gospel is always more important for the Christian than exercising his or her personal rights. Any rights that might have hindered Paul's ability to share the gospel with the people he was called to, he let go of immediately. They were no priority to him. So at the beginning, we asked, how should we as Christians think about our rights? Surely it's different from how the world thinks about its rights. And here we find the answer. We think about our rights, our personal rights, as secondary to the gospel. The most important thing to us as Christians is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Because without the good news of Jesus Christ, people will die and be damned to hell. And there is nothing more eternally significant than that. And there is nothing more urgent than that. Because Jesus Christ is going to return. He can return by the time we leave this church. And when he does, all of our fighting for our personal rights will be shown for what they are, temporary. Now, I'm not saying that rights are an illusion, they don't exist. I'm not saying that rights are unimportant, because they are. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about the fact that many people are being mistreated and oppressed in many ways. I'm saying for us as Christians, we are not like the world in that we, I, Matt Brawley, do not have to clamor to make sure you recognize my rights. It's just not that important to me anymore. I follow Jesus Christ who gave up all of his rights willingly to come and save me. And now that's my DNA. And if it would mean saving you, if it would mean getting the gospel to you, I would gladly give up all my rights just like that. That's the Christian mindset toward his or her personal rights. We should be grateful for our rights, but we should never idolize them. If when you're in your household and your personal rights are infringed upon in just the mundane ways that they can be in a household— Here in our church, if your legitimate rights of yours are imposed upon in some way by someone else unknowingly, or maybe they did it on purpose because they're mean, or even as we watch the news and we see the whole world clamoring for their rights, if we have greater and more immediate passion about our personal rights than we do, that person's need for the gospel, something is wrong. As we grow as Christians, we will become more and more like Jesus Christ. More and more concerned with other people's rights than our own. More and more concerned that the gospel be proclaimed, that people become Christians and grow as Christians, than that our own personal rights are acknowledged and respected. May we, over time, increasingly be able to say with Paul what he says in verse 12. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. May we be able to say with Paul what he says in verse 23, our closing verse. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Everything I do in my life, I do for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Father. Help us to live in light of it. Please install this passage of scripture in our souls so that it can operate when we encounter situations in which our personal rights are infringed upon, and we can have discernment to know, is this a time to assert our rights, or is this a time to let go of our rights? Let our guiding principle be, what would Jesus Christ do? Let our guiding passion and motivation be, how can I get the gospel to people who need it? In Jesus' name, amen.